Hello, my name is Kristen Smith, and welcome to Season 2, Episode 8 of the Sight Black Women Podcast. This year, we are dedicating our podcasts for the month of August to commemorating Black radical and revolutionary transnational feminisms. Many of us know the month of August is known as Black August, a time for honoring the struggle for Black resistance, especially Black revolutionaries and political prisoners. The history of Black August can be traced back to the tragic killing of George Jackson during an uprising at the San Quentin State Prison outside of Oakland, California on August 21st, 1971. In the wake of his death and in solidarity with the struggle of political prisoners, Black organizers began to dedicate the month of August as a time of solemn reflection, meditation, and liberation. In that spirit, this month we are focusing on the voices of radical Black feminist organizing from the Global South. In this episode, which was recorded at the Black Women's Intellectual Contributions to the Americas Conference at the Lozano Long Institute for Latin American Studies at the University of Texas at Austin in February 2020, Professors Alisa Trotz of the University of Toronto and Nicole Burroughs of Rutgers University engage in a thoughtful dialogue about the life of Guyanese radical Black feminist thinker Andaye, who recently passed away in May 2019. Alisa Trotz, a longtime friend and collaborator of hers, discusses Ndaye's life and her recently released collection of essays, The Point is to Change the World, Selected Writings by Ndaye, which was published as part of the Black Critique series at Pluto Press in April 2020. Alisa Trotz is in conversation here with longtime Black feminist organizer, historian of Guyana, and former student Nicole Burroughs. Their dialogue, which is both intimate and deeply reflective, is truly a treat. I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I have. Their full bios are available in the podcast description and on our website, siteblackwomencollective.org. Hi, this is Nicole Burroughs here with Alisa Trotz from the University of Toronto, and I'm very excited to interview her today about her work and everything that she's been doing. So why don't we start out by you telling us a little bit about why you decided to come to this conference and what made you want to speak about Ndaye in particular? Hmm. Well, actually, I, I, um, I met Kristen at the Aswood conference in Williamsburg last fall. We were on a panel together. And um, she told me about this conference. I was really excited and especially intrigued by the fact that, you know, it was a conference that was going to really center not just black women's thought, but really center black women from the non-Anglophone Americas, which is such a huge illusion um, because we're so linguistically challenged mm-hmm. as Anglophones. It's, you know, part of our colonial condition. And in the Caribbean in particular, you know, the Anglophone Caribbean tends to dominate, even though we're five million people. It's Mm -hmm. really quite ridiculous. And I could speak about this personally as a Guyanese sharing a border with Venezuela, Brazil and Suriname. You sort of and and being located in the South American continent, it just seemed to me like a great opportunity um, not only to meet 
these women um, and, uh, you know, women and gender non-conforming folks, but also um, really sort of challenging the invisibility of of um, black women within a, a, a sort of a radical or left radical tradition. And so that sense that if within a radical left tradition, forget a mainstream tradition, mm-hmm. but even within a radical left tradition, black women are marginalized, then mm-hmm. how do we think about black women from um, Latin America or from South America? America or from the, you know, the other Americas, as Ariel Dorfman sort of says, um, and the ways in which because of this sort of linguistic divide, we don't necessarily have access to mm-hmm. to those words in the, in the way that they often don't have access to ours. Although the hegemony of English means that many of them, many more of those women speak English than we would speak Spanish or Portuguese. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. so that was actually my main reason for coming. And then I sort of decided to focus on Andai um, and to fit her, in, you know, to think of her in the context of this genealogy of a, a black radical activist. You know, she is an intellectual, but we think of it more as praxis. I'm not sure what we would actually call that, a black radical tradition that comes um, sort of directly out of her, out of 50 years of organizing experience um, in in the in the Caribbean and, and beyond. And to sort of share that experience with folks here who probably would not have had an opportunity to have known her otherwise, um, except for the fact that fortunately we have a, a, collect- a collection of her essays um, that is being published posthumously. She died last May. 31st, 2019, is being published posthumously by the <laughs> Black Critique series of Pluto Press mm-hmm. and it's coming out in April. So thankfully there's yes. an opportunity for that. So yeah, anyway, that's a long answer to that question. <laughs> it's a good it's a good answer though. So tell us a little bit more about Andai, who she was and who she was to you specifically actually and, and mm-hmm. what she represented in Guyana and abroad. Hmm. She was really an incredible person and, you know, um, there's a fantastic interview <coughs> with her um, and David Scott um, in Small Acts, mm-hmm. a special issue on Guyana, where he says something about her. I think he talks about um, her legendary impatience with stupidity, which is very <laughs> true. She had a self-deprecating humor, but indeed this impatience with stupidity. And you can actually see that kind of not that impatience with stupidity is not like David was stupid, but you you can see the sort of bantering between them over the space of that interview. And even when she asks a question, when he asks a question, she refuses the question he asks. She answers a question he hasn't asked. She reformulates his question, um, you know. Um, but the Guyanese activist and elder uh, who's now in his 90s and living in Atlanta, Yusi Koyana, puts it best when he describes her as Guyana's um, conscience. Mm. She was <laughs> born in Guyana in 1942 um, to, uh, and, and grew up in what would become a middle-class household. Her parents were both studying to be nurses and then they became nurses and then her father eventually became a doctor. So um, she um, was educated in Guyana and then at the University of the West Indies and she moved to the United States for a while where I think she was... Um, she was working within the CUNY system and mm. starting to get involved. A lot of her political activism begins really in the 1970s. Um, before that, she explains, you know, um, she explains that she lived a life of what she calls willed frivolity um, at the University of the West Indies. So she really begins to cut her teeth politically in New York 
work in the 1970s. And then she um, returns to Guyana. She is sort of persuaded to return to Guyana to join the anti-dictatorial um, uh, struggle against the Forbes-Burnham regime in Guyana. And she never leaves. She's one of the founding members. She's one of the members of a group movement against oppression, which is one of the groups that come together with a number of other groups to form the Working People's Alliance um, in the late 1970s. That is the party of the Pan-Africanist historian Walter Rodney. Um, by the mid 1980s, because he is assassinated in 1980, the women in Red Thread, the women of the WPA had begun asking questions around where the women were and women's leadership, uh, a search that would lead eventually to them establishing uh, a women's organization called Red Thread in 1986 that was an autonomous organization, by which I mean it was autonomous from the political parties. And what we have in the Caribbean are political parties and women's arms of political parties. And they were very clear they didn't want to do that, especially after they saw what had happened after the collapse of the Grenadian Revolution, the National Women's Organization of Grenada, there was thousands of women strong, sort of disappeared overnight. Mm-hmm. Um, and so autonomy for them was really important. They also wanted to emphasize, given the sort of colonial racial history that pitted Africans and Indians on the coast of Guyana against each other in ways that also elided the um, experience and lives of indigenous peoples who occupy the, who live largely in the hinterland. Um, the Red Thread sort of foregrounded working with women across racial divides as their principal aim. Um, as well as the fact that even though it was a women's organization, they began with the starting point of all of their analysis and activism was grassroots women. So very much sort of emphasizing working class or I don't working class assumes a relationship to work that privileges wage work. So let's say grassroots women mm-hmm. um, and and recognize unwaged caring work as the foundation of all societies and economies and therefore as the starting point for the basis of any larger kind of transformation. So, you know, she was a member of Red Thread and she was also associated with the global um, women's strike um, that Selma James is very active in and women of color in the in the global strike. For a time, she was on the regional executive of the Caribbean Association for Feminist Research and Action um, and many other things. And, and she was a cancer survivor. You know, she was diagnosed with non-Hodgkin's, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma in 1989 and lived with that for 30 years. And then I think in 2012, she was diagnosed with um, breast cancer and underwent a mastectomy with local anesthetic because Mm. her body had been so ravaged by chemotherapy um, that her lungs and heart couldn't withstand a general anesthetic. So, um, and she continued to work as much as she could and participate in campaigns as much as she could right up to <coughs> right up to the last time she was admitted into hospital which was in May mm-hmm. of last year 2019 mm-hmm. and you've referred to her as as like a second mother before mm-hmm. and a, you call her aunt and so can you say a little bit more about the lessons that she's given you over time? Because you've known her for such a long time and she was so formative in your own development. Yeah, she's been huge. <laughs> I've known her. 
I feel like I've known her, you know, I was giving a memorial lecture with Anthony Bogues in Barbados, the Melroy Reese lecture um, last week. And I was saying to the audience, which included many of her friends and colleagues, uh, people like Peggy Antrobus and Nan Peacock and others. And I was saying to them, like, I feel I know her before <coughs> I was even born. She was um, part of my, you know, a, a circle that was part of my mother's generation. Um, and so she and my mother were friends. They went to university in Jamaica together. In fact, she was bridesmaid at my mother's wedding. Um, yeah, so I kind of have known her all of my life. Um, but I really got to know her um, in in the kind of way that allows me to speak with some kind of fluency in the um, from about 1989, um, which is knowing her as a grown up person. She is my other mother. You know, in the Caribbean, we have all of these chosen, not just blood families, but chosen families. We have a very sort of queer um, relationship to family, um, which folks often don't recognize when they stereotype the Caribbean as the most homophobic place in the world. Right. Mm -hmm. But um, we have all of these other mothers and women who can't or don't want to bear children, but then have other people's children. And mm -hmm. so she really was another mother um, in that sort of way. But in the 19 in 1989, I had gone back as a grad student, um, early 1990s, and she was back home after her first sort of bout with cancer and rounds of chemotherapy. And she would come and, um, you know, collect me at 530 in the morning on the seawall because my mom's house was right on the seawall. And she would call out for me in the seawall in the morning and we would go walking as part of her exercise, her exercise, because I'm very lazy. But we would walk <laughs> and we would talk. Mm -hmm. And um, and, you know, through that, I sort of um, became involved in in Red Thread and um there, there was so much I, I, I learned from her. I think, you know, so many lessons you learn from her and from the other women in the Working People's Alliance and from, you know, reading the work of folks like Walter Rodney, who, you know, we grew up with as, as children, like, but, you know, and then you re-encounter them as, as, um, as students. He was someone else who, who um, I, I knew as well. But there were so many things I learned from her. I think the one thing you, you learn from her, which is also in Walter Rodney's, um, I think it's in Walter Rodney Speaks, um, is <laughs> she had a wicked sense of humor and it was very self-deprecating. <clears throat> but it was a kind of politics or an ethics of reflexivity. And it was the ability, Rodney says it, I think it's in Walter Rodney Speaks, that you have to learn to take, not to take yourself too seriously or not to take the system too seriously. I'm not quoting it exactly. Um, as long as you understand that you are you are participating in activities that are aimed at challenging and overthrowing the system and not becoming part of the system. Mm -hmm. And I always think that that's a really beautiful lesson because it reminds us about the pitfalls of becoming earnest, how earnestness is a neighbor to arrogance and an absence mm -hmm. of humility. It also teaches us about <laughs> historical specificity and being attentive to the social motion of any given period or um, or any given kind of formation that you are either participating in or analyzing, um, which means that you are also always open to flux and to movement and to change. I think that's one of the most important things that I learned from her. And the other important thing that I learned from her that you also learn from other people like George Lamming, who is, you know, was her very good friend for decades 
um, from Walter Rodney's example of talking about the folks he learned from most were the folks that the places he learned from first were the places where as a young child in the anti-colonial period, he would go with his father to hand out booklets to the People's Progressive Party to working class people's households and, you know, and, and therefore talking about school in the colonial sort of sense of the word becoming that place that um, that takes that away from you, how it teaches you to become a traitor to your class, right? Um, if you come from the working class, because that's an avenue to social mobility. And for someone like me, who's middle class, but in the Caribbean middle class, you know, you go one generation or two generations back and you're working class, right? So it's about, it. I think what they taught us was, what does it mean to do intellectual work? And what is intellectual work? And what does it mean to really have faith, not a romanticized faith that, you know, that everything in the popular, everything at the grassroots level, everything is perfect, not at all. But what does it mean to understand that principle of self-emancipation that was really important to the Working People's Alliance and to the way in which and I carried that forward and extended it in thinking about women's, um, you know, practices of liberation and decolonization that took gender really seriously, was that faith in... Um, recognizing that that there's you know in our quotidian everyday practices we can always find resonant evidence of the self-organizing capacity of working people you know mm-hmm. <clears throat> it breaks down that division between the teacher and the student mm-hmm. the learner and the led uh, it breaks down that kind of authoritarian hierarchical relationship um which has really bedeviled us in in the in the Caribbean. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I guess I want to ask you too about some of her her relationships because there's all these very fierce women who are who know each other, right? Yes. Who have connections, and one of those people is Audrey Lord. So, can you tell mm-hmm. us a little bit about her relationship with Audrey Lord? Right. There's a um, she. Um, Got to know Audrey in, in the Caribbean, as you know, Audrey is um, from Kariakou. Um, and but they really connected around their experiences of cancer. Mm-hmm. And she wrote a, a, a piece in a CAFRA newsletter, which is the Caribbean Association of Feminist Research and Action that she was a part of, that has since been reprinted in um, the late Gloria Joseph, who also passed last, did Gloria pass last year or this year? The late Gloria Joseph um, reprinted that essay. And then Margaret Busby um, also reprinted the essay in a book on black women um, uh, in the diaspora that was published last year. And we've just republished that essay in the anthology of Andaya's writings. It's going to be coming out in April. And for me, it is one of the most beautiful tributes to Audrey Lord I've um, I've encountered. And it's beautiful because it's so humorous. And by by humorous, by be, in being humorous, it sort of restores that that kind of joyful. Um, care that is really at the heart of radical praxis, right? That that reminds us of, that the holding up of each other is also about irreverence and um, and it's something I learned from her, from the women of the 
um, WPA, you heard me on the phone with them just now, <laughs> the women of Red Thread. It's that, that capacity to always sort of be irreverent, which is, you know, there is a pedagogical thing to that because you, you keep knocking each other off of the pedestal, right? So, so, so it's, you know, if, but, but in a loving way, it's not, it's not uh, that term we have in the Caribbean. It's not knocking them off in the crab in the barrel way because you want to get on the pedestal. Right. It's, it's reminding us all about being accountable to each other, but it's a humorous and beautiful tribute to Audre Lorde. And it, it all turns on them having these conversations um, on their experiences with cancer. And I don't want to give too much away, but, you know, one day Audrey calls and I and and I is moaning because because of the chemo, her teeth fell out and she has to wear a plate. And in the Caribbean, you know, what could be more humiliating than wearing a plate? And the the story ends not with them both sort of crying about the fact that their teeth are falling out during the care due to chemotherapy, but about how do you have sex with false teeth? And, you know, it's this hilarious exchange <laughs> where Andaya says after, she doesn't even know if Audrey was saying the truth <laughs> or if she'd made it up out of whole cloth is the language she uses. But it was what is, you know, what did that exchange teach us? And it, it, it was just, it's just, it's really lovely. It's really <laughs> lovely. But yeah. I had another question. What around... So what does it mean for her to be irreverent in Guyana in the period in which she was coming up? And then two, I find sometimes there's some silences around her story as well. And so I don't want, I'm not going to break those silences, but I guess I, I do have questions about why that is. Does that make sense? Well, why don't you ask me directly what okay. silences those are? So, so for example, I never hear people talk <laughs> about her as a queer woman, um, and I thought she was, but maybe she wasn't. I'm not sure. But that's one of the questions. Like, people don't refer to her in that way. And maybe she didn't refer to herself that way. I'm not sure. Um, I, I don't know that that would have been. No, she never would refer to her. I would say that let, let's just put it this other way, that and I queerness is marked by her affiliations and disaffiliations mm -hmm. with chosen ones, with chosen family, with who she loved, with how she operated. She was disobedient on all terms to disobedient to um, what it meant to be growing up as a respectable mm -hmm. Um, middle-class black woman in colonial and then independent Guyana. So I think what we can say is that while she would not have used the language of queer to define herself, mm -hmm. that we can certainly think of her, the way she moved and operated in the world, the relations that she had that cross all kinds of lines, particularly of class in relation to the grassroots women that she lived with and worked with, um, that we can certainly recognize that as a, a, a queer ethic. Mm -hmm. that infused how she thought and how she moved in the world. Mm -hmm. Does that does that yes, help? Yes, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that, you know, I was saying earlier today was, you know, in explaining the sort of provenance of her name, Andai, so she was, um, quote unquote, baptized Sandra Williams. Mm -hmm. And in 1971, she, as her good friend and um, political affiliate, Benita Bowen Harris says, she discarded the two names and merged it into one name, Andai, which means that anytime she had to go for a passport or fill out something on the computer, it was whenever we had to do that, it was torture because you had to put Andai, Andai or Andai X or because she only had one name. Um, but she, and Andai means she, daughter who has returned home 
was a clear sort of <coughs> rooting of herself in an African diasporic sort of um, uh, sense, the claiming of an African heritage, a rejection of Eurocentrism. But also just taking one name was also a clear sort of refusal of Eurocentric, <laughs> Eurocentric practices of naming in the Caribbean that always carry the colonial trace because Williams would have been a colonial trace related to the transatlantic slave trade, right? So refusing the European name, refusing the patriarchal father name that you take the father's family name, right? right? Mm-hmm. And, and also refusing in the context of the Caribbean that thing that always happens when you meet someone and they say, what's your last name? And usually it can be great and it's very familiar, but but what's your last name is also a way of placing you, locating you in a social landscape striated by lines of sex and class and race, gender. You know, it's Mm -hmm. like, who is your family? Who are your people? And do they matter? The Jamaicans call it smaddy. (laughs) Are they smaddy? Are they somebody that we need to know? So taking that away was also... uh, a refusal of, you know, of of that, what we call today in our fancy academic language, the inner plantation mentality or the inner plantation logic, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we skipped over something. I want to ask you about you because I don't want to lose this time and not begin to ask you some questions about who you are and why you do this work and what brought you to do, because you do so many different kinds of intellectual work as well as activism. And so I wanted to give you an opportunity to speak about that a little bit. Um, yeah, it's kind of hard to speak about myself. <laughs> um, and we could talk about you and your work, too, because, I mean, there's so many overlaps in terms of the amazing work that you have been doing on women and um, not just women, but thinking about um you know, in the in the post sort of abolition period in Guyana, thinking about what it means to um, to to, you know, to to challenge um, the way in which the sort of plantation system is reconfiguring itself um, in the post emancipation period through indentureship, um, through the end of indentureship, the sort of um, beginnings of organizing in the 1930s that you do so beautifully. So I do think that there's lots of overlaps here and we sort of represent or span these different kinds Mm of um, generations. It's sometimes hard to talk about myself as well in the sense that, you know, I'm a professor at the University of Toronto, but I work with these incredible women and um, in, in Guyana primarily. And you always think, but there, but for the grace of God, mm-hmm. go I, not just, you know, in Guyana, Peggy Antrobus out of Grenada, with whom we're um, now running an online Caribbean feminist political economy course for mm-hmm. activists and women across the Caribbean that's in its second or third week. It's amazing. We have like yes. 10 or 12 instructors and we run it on a Zoom platform mm-hmm. and it's working wonderfully. And then, you know, somebody's gets a power outage in one of the islands and they can't join or, you know. Um, so there's a part of it that you sort of really indebted. I think that's the first thing I want to say is I see everything I do in the academy as um, as building on, on, you know, a set of conditions of possibility that, that these folks, many of whom are still with us and many of whom are increasingly leaving us, um, <clears throat> Have have sort of um, 
have sort of made possible. So that both shapes what I study and do, you know, my work predominantly on the Caribbean, thinking around questions of transnationality, migration and diaspora, a long-term project on colonial... gender too. Uh, yes, uh, that, that, that <laughs> was that sort of central to everything. Um, <laughs> thinking around um, a long-standing project on coloniality and extractive violence mm -hmm. um, through a period of protracted um, political trauma that took the form of um, racial disturbances in, in Guyana on the cusp of independence, our own sort of um, Midnight's Children to sort of bring Salman Rushdie out of the Indian context and into a place like Guyana. Um, so in that sense, you know, shaped by the multiracial mm -hmm. um, sort of approach that I think I learned from folks like Andai, certainly learned from History of the Guyanese Working People, mm -hmm. which, you know, by, you Walter sort of, Rodney. by Walter Rodney, which is incredible and also provides lots of opportunities to use his method to go beyond where he would have taken it because it's a book that's very much around the coast so it doesn't engage questions of indigeneity mm -hmm. and while gender is sort of imminent in the text it's not necessarily a, a central sort of part of his analysis but I would say that their work also shapes what I do in relation and um, so the one thing that I would mention here is a newspaper column that I've edited for the last 11 years in Guyana um, called In the Diaspora that runs in a Guyanese independent newspaper, the Stabrook News. And it was actually inspired by a newspaper column that Andai started called Woman's Eye View in the early 1990s in Guyana as well. And she started it as a placeholding space where not just she, but other women would write. And so when I started the diaspora column, it was the same thing that I wanted to have a column and get column space that wouldn't just be associated with me writing it every week. So in fact, for 11 years, I don't write Sometimes there will be months that I don't write, um, but other people write and they are, can be academics and they can be professors and they can be students and they can be artists and they can be um, labor organizers. And they are not just Guyanese and they're not just in the Caribbean, they're in the diaspora and they might write about the labor strike in um in Guadeloupe, or they might write about the effects of Hurricane Maria in Puerto Rico, or they might write about Cuban doctors in Haiti in the aftermath of the 2010 earthquake. Mm -hmm. So it's sort of trying to create a, a, a regional space that is both um, physical, because it's a newspaper that is sold on the streets and virtual. It's an online, um, it has an online presence as well. So I would say that my work in, in a sense is also shaped by the folks in Guyana and then a longer tradition of uh, kind of a, a regional network of ideas and conversations that in the anti-colonial period would have been represented by something like a journal, New World, um, that was sort of started out of Jamaica and then comes to Guyana. There's New World Quarterly, New World Weekly, but many of those folks in the days before internet and all of that would like ship copies to each other on the boats and mm -hmm. things that were going from one island to the other. During the period of some kind of radicalism or radical experiment in the post-independent period in places like Jamaica or with the Grenada Revolution. So there was the Caribbean Contact, which mm -hmm. was a newspaper run, I think, by the Caribbean Council of Churches that also had a regional thing. And then um, by the late Jamaican economist, who was also really um, important figure for me, 
Norman Gervan. Mm-hmm. He had a, a website that's no longer up called normangervan.info where he uploaded all of his talks published, unpublished, whether they had copyright or not, everything was there. It was open access. He also used it as an archive for other people's work, for newspaper articles he wrote for my column. But that was also another example for me of what it meant to actually, um, there's a there's a final essay in Andaya's um, um, book where she talks about Walter Rodney saying you you really needed to continue participating in conversations if you were actually going to sort of grow or shift that you always had to be contributing to conversations. And so I saw I saw those examples of an earlier generation, um, some of whom I grew up with as as giving us a template, which we will take in new and different kinds of ways. You know, the amazing new generations like Tonya Haynes in the Caribbean, this amazing um Sister Yamaira, mm-hmm. um, who's here from Michigan State University, who has these blogs like, you know, there are new generations taking it in all kinds of incredible ways. But I suppose that's the outward facing work that I, I do that is as much shaped by this as my academic work is. Mm-hmm. Wait, let me you in done yet. Put it back on. Good. So. I noticed um, Nicole just turned this off as if it was finished. And so I just wanted to turn it back to Nicole and ask her as uh, an academic with Guyanese Heritage and Connections, which is sort of how we met. I wanted to ask um, her to reflect on her own sort of historical work, which resonates in really incredible ways with so many of the themes that I sort of um, raised here. And so um, the final word will be given to Nicole Burroughs. So tell us a bit about yourself, Nicole, and about the work that you do. That is absolutely unfair. (laughs) Every time I try to put the lens on Lisa, she turns it back. Um, I mean, a lot of things have shaped how I think about all of this work that we do. I definitely am influenced by by people like Andaya, by people like Walter Rodney, by by you in particular, because I saw you as, I remember when I first met you, it was at a diaspora conference. I know you don't remember this, but I'll remind you. It was at a diaspora conference that broke down pretty painfully around oh, this in question in oh, D.C. around oh, this question gosh. of race and, race and violence. And there was maybe six women in the entire mm-hmm. room. It was like maybe 40 people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it was maybe six at best. And I remember you got up and you challenged all the men in there. And you, yes, I, I would say. <laughs> and you challenged all the men in there to have a different vision for what is possible and to begin to figure out how we can work in solidarity mm-hmm. with each other. And it was it was really heavily uh, Afro-Indo-Guyanese yeah. divide. Yeah, I remember that. And for me, it was transformative. One, because you got up and you spoke truth in that big room mm-hmm. of men. <laughs> and I thought that it helped change the direction of the conversation. And it also began to give me a vision for what that could look like mm-hmm. in rooms like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also come out of a tradition of organizing as well in Brooklyn, mm-hmm. though, with Black and Latinx young women around questions of domestic violence, around mm-hmm. police violence against young women. And that has profoundly shaped everything I do, how I teach, how I write, how I do collaboration. Um, and so thinking about these questions of imperialism, <laughs> capitalism, gender, sexuality, 
all of those things are shaped by folks in the Caribbean and then folks in Brooklyn, New York, mm-hmm. <laughs> that hail from all over the place, including Brazil and places like that, women who are trying to change the society for the better so that the people who are coming behind us have a different future and possibility than even what we have right now. So mm-hmm. Amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I am not with you yet. One more question. <laughs> so how do you see the historical work that you're doing connecting with, you know, or how do you see this organizing work that you did? How did that lead you into a different kind of place for your doctoral work, for example? Because you end up in the archives in a very different sort of way. But I guess looking for similar patterns of solidarity. Yeah, I was looking for patterns of solidarity. I was also paying attention to what youth were doing right. as well and thinking about those kinds of questions. But when I encountered this, because I, I document a series of strikes that happened in the 1930s that brought communities together. And one of the things that Alyssa has been pushing me to do is to think about what's going on beyond what's happening on the plantation mm-hmm. and what's going on between people as they support each other mm-hmm. through crises and catastrophe. And what does that solidarity look like? Yeah. Right. Yeah, <laughs> um, and so I've been looking at those questions. But I know it's possible because we've done it. And I've been part of experiences where, <laughs> where people you have to build with each other mm-hmm. and learn each other. Right. Mm-hmm. It's not about erasing difference, yeah. not acknowledging um, differences in opinion mm-hmm. or differences in heritage or culture. But it's about really learning and knowing each other mm-hmm. in order to be able to change the things that we think are problematic. So that's kind of what informs mm-hmm. how I approach this stuff. And I think the more we have examples from the past, the more we know is possible in the future, despite what it looks like right now. Right. You know. Yeah. <laughs> so I do want you to comment on the future of Guyana right now, because there's a lot going on in terms of the oil, in terms of the new elections. Uh, it's just it's a lot happening there right now. And you also I also mm-hmm. want you to speak a little bit about what's going on in Canada and your relationship to that as well. Uh, well, what's going on in Guyana is really dread. Let me say that I think one of the really beautiful things about your work, and I really look forward to reading it when it's I've seen it in dissertation form and stuff. I really look forward to seeing where you go with it. One of the beautiful things about your work that I think is is not done enough in the Caribbean is the fact that you do pay attention to young people as a constituency. Mm-hmm. That for you, that is an important question that we still are to answer historically, mm-hmm. right? I think that's really important. And after Andaya died, we posthumously published the week after she died, mm-hmm. or the either the, the column the week after, the second week after, one of her Women's Eye View columns, which was called An Open Letter to Today's Youth, mm-hmm. um, as a way of saying it is up to you to begin to sort of break these patterns, this mm-hmm. to break out of these racial silos. Um, and, and so in that sense, I guess what I will say about Guyana is that we have to hope that we can begin to sort of do the work to to break out of that because we're in a very sort of, um, you know, Exxon Mobil is in Guyana, has made one of the largest oil fines um, in recent times in a context in which Venezuela is being shut down. Juan Guaido has been sort of recognized as the president by the imperialist powers. Um, Exxon Mobil is sort of being positioned in Guyana as a replacement for Venezuelan oil. So the geopolitical interests are are very clear, but it is as if we have learned nothing. And so, you know, in a context where some of the work I'm doing is on the uh, bauxite mining during the 
um, colonial period and the pre-independence period and a history of um, extractivism and a history of destruction that's taking place at both ends of the commodity chain, both in Guyana as well as in Canada. And I'll come back to Canada for your last question. You can mm-hmm. ask me about that. But it's as if we've learned nothing. nothing. ExxonMobil has signed a contract that most Guyanese know nothing about, cannot understand. I believe even the IMF said that this was actually a surprising contract in terms of how much Exxon got away with. Mm-hmm. Um, the, uh, you know, And most Guyanese are... Um, the conversation is very much, if it's critical, is very much in in the line of we need to have a transparent contract. We need to have a better contract. If there's an oil spill, what will happen to the fisher folk and indigenous people in Region 1? But oil is never off the table, even in the most critical, well, with very rare exceptions mm-hmm. in the most critical conversations. It's with very and clear exceptions, I can count them on two hands, literally, um, because we feel that we are, you know, all the projections and the economists and all of them are saying, you know, we're going to have these massive, incredible growth rates. And, you know, the country is facing uh, an economic crisis. The inequalities are huge and staggering and in your face. It's compounded by all of the difficulties that we're facing with, um, you know, we have uh, uh, Venezuelans are increasingly coming into the country because of the political crisis in in Venezuela. So um, folks feel that oil is going to be sort of this new windfall. And, yeah. and, you know, there is a model for another way of doing this. You know, the tragedy is that Mia Motley, who is the recently elected prime minister in Barbados, got in with a landslide where the opposition lost all of their seats and has been doing some really quite progressive things, particularly around, uh, particularly around um, really sort of reminding us what a Caribbean regional um, uh, vision could look like. But she's just um, in conversation, if not, has signed a deal with oil companies to drill offshore in Barbadian waters. And, and the model for an alternative exists right in the Caribbean, by which I mean a number of years ago, a few years ago, in the middle of an economic crisis, so when there was every opportunity to say oil would be our savior, the people of Belize, mm. due to an amazing campaign led predominantly by Belizean women, forced the government of Belize to sign a permanent moratorium on oil, all deep sea oil drilling. We need we need to remind ourselves of more examples like that in our own region and multiply them. So my worry is that Guyana is going to end right back up with, you know, we somehow feel that we better than Nigeria and we better than all these other countries and we won't have the oil curse. We're going to end up right back where we started. And Percy Hinson, a political scientist, talks about, you know, neocolonialism and extractivism and reminds us that, you know, we have not resolved these political matters which are deeply connected to, you know, to, to um, you know, to deeply connected to, to um, uh, the interests of, of capital. And that in that context, all of the racial sort of divides that pit us against each other, that's an alibi for the ongoing sort of um, devastation, economic and environmentally, that we stand to, to, to experience with something like this. So one can only hope that, you know, there's a new generation that is going to begin to ask, begin by asking the small questions, the challenging questions, but begin to sort of talk and organize and mobilize towards a different kind of future. Mm-hmm. Did you did you want to say something about the work in Canada? 
Um, when you say the work in Canada? Both the whole thing around the drilling and the, I mean the... Oh, so yes, the only thing, yes, I think it, it is a useful place to remind ourselves always of where we are. And so we could end this interview as diasporics who live in these settler colonial states um, that are the lands of indigenous peoples is to mm -hmm. ask ourselves, what is the land underneath us? Who are the people and the lands that we are responsible to? And what does it mean to even begin to ask that question? And I can ask, I can answer that question even standing in Guyana in the community where I do my work, which was a bauxite mining community where during the Second World War, 80% of the aluminum came from bauxite that um, was removed from mines in Guyana and Jamaica and Suriname. And much of that aluminum, much of that bauxite that would be turned into aluminum came from Jamaica, where it went to Kitimat in British Columbia and came from Guyana where it went up to Cheyennegan in Quebec. Mm. And there's a direct connection here between the extractivism in the Caribbean and settler colonialism in Canada, because you have to ask who were the indigenous peoples who were removed in, in the case of Quebec, for example, um, in order for the massive hydro projects oh that generated the electricity, the massive amounts of electricity that were required to transform bauxite into aluminum. Um, and I say that n now because, um, one, because as I said, you know, we see a similar pattern in terms of the patterns of extractivism that build on that colonial history in, in the context of Exxon now drilling off our shores. Um, but we also have to think about examples of challenge and refusal. And so I, I think where I should end is um, with the fact that right here, right now in February 2020, in Canada, we have like major, um, major disruptions to to rail um, in Canada, passenger rail, as well as um, the circulation of goods. So the intentional disruption of supply chains um, by the Mohawk and other indigenous nations and allies in support of and in, in defense of um, the Wet'suwet'en, Wet'suwet'en hereditary chiefs who have opposed a coastal gas pipeline through unceded indigenous territory and indigenous folks who are saying, no, this is not good enough. Um, this, this does not meet any standards of free prior and informed consent that you will not be dividing us because what has been, uh, what one of the things they have done is to say that the hereditary chiefs have said no, but um, uh, band councils have said yes. So folks saying you will not divide us and have actually interrupted the movement of passengers and goods um, in a struggle that has now, as you can imagine, gotten national attention because it costs money and it costs the Canadian economy. But I think there we see a really inspiring example of, um, of infrastructures of resistance mm -hmm. confronting yeah. infrastructures that um, are used to carry profits and carry death and carry forms of oppression. And so I think that to me is a is a really empowering and important example to think about um, what it means to actually um, challenge a world in which profits are always put before human lives and that it doesn't take a huge 
struggle. It, it takes struggle and it takes work, but it doesn't take millions of people on the streets, and, you know, that mm -hmm. you don't need a whole heap of people to block a railway. Mm -hmm. Right. So mm -hmm. what it what it also does, and it brings us right back to Walter Rodney Speaks, where he has this wonderful thing where he says two things that, you know, if you he talks about how Caribbean people and we could think Latin American people too, given again this conference, we how, you know, he says of a Caribbean person in London, anyone who could come from the country and pick themselves up and get on a boat and get to London and run the hospital system and run the railway system. You must know we are extraordinary people and we are capable of anything. But the other thing that he makes us see in that um, Alper's no, it's 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 Pierre Alpiers. I think it's it's Walter Rodney speaks. Is he he makes us see capitalism not as all powerful, mm -hmm. but as requiring the infrastructure of working people of the world. Lorna Goodison, who's the Jamaican poet, does has a beautiful poem called "Counting the Silver" that also does mm -hmm. the same thing, but rewrites that narrative through the labor of women. Um, and and I sort of end there by saying that what these blockades in defense of the Wet'suwet'en um, chiefs saying no, what they show us is how vulnerable capital is. Mm -hmm. So when we think of all of this violence that we face, which we cannot escape and the toll it takes on black people, and but it isn't necessarily to see it only as the state, for example, is all powerful, but to see it as demonstrating that incredible anxiety that then manifests in violence in the face of, of otherwise thinking and otherwise acting. And that real blockade shows us that soft on the belly um, and, and that another world is, is definitely possible. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Sight Black Women. Follow us at Sight Black Women on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and our new website, www.sightblackwomencollective.org. And remember, it's simple. Sight Black Women. We theorize, we produce, we revolutionize the world. Thank you.